0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the channel with Carrie Figder. Today, my guest is Jamie Kelly. We will be talking about his new book, Framing Democracy A Behavioral Approach to Democratic Theory, which has just been published by Princeton University Press. Jamie Kelly is an assistant professor of philosophy at Vassar College. An old argument that goes back to Plato has it that democracy is nearly the worst form of government because citizens are decidedly unwise. Many styles of democratic theory have tried to meet Plato's argument by denying that democracy has anything to do with wisdom. Democracy, such views claim, is simply a matter of representing citizens' preferences in politics, or instead a matter of giving everyone equal input into the political decision-making process. But even these minimal conceptions of democracy typically want to distinguish between raw and enlightened preferences. They thereby smuggle in considerations regarding the wisdom or rationality of democratic citizens. More recent democratic theories have embraced the epistemic aspect of democratic politics and have tried to show, against Plato, that citizens are not too unwise for self-government. Some of these democratic theories hold that democracy in fact requires very little wisdom and that citizens generally measure up to these requirements. Other views have it that democracy's epistemic demands are indeed significant, but they hold nevertheless that collective judgments of democratic citizens make the grade. In Framing Democracy, Jamie Kelly introduces empirical results concerning human epistemic abilities to bear on the current field of democratic theory. He argues that our susceptibility to framing effects greatly complicates the story democratic theorists must tell about collective self-government and individual rationality. Kelly thereby provides a much-needed empirical check on the claims democratic theorists make, either implicitly or explicitly, about the epistemic powers of citizens. Yet Kelly's book is not simply an update of Plato. Kelly offers institutional and policy proposals for dealing with our epistemic vulnerabilities. Let's turn now to the interview. Hello, Jamie Kelly. Hello. How are you this morning?
1: I'm very well.
0: Well, excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today on New Books in Philosophy.
1: Thanks for having me, Bob.
0: Well, great. Well, folks, um, It's presidential election time in the United States, as uh, many of you will know. Um, So today on New Books in Philosophy, uh, I'll be talking to Professor Jamie Kelly about his new book, Framing Democracy, a Behavioral Approach to Democratic Theory, which has just been published by Princeton University Press. Now, Jamie's book is an attempt to bring certain empirical results concerning human reasoning and decision-making to bear on democratic theory. The book is clearly written and very rigorously argued, I found. Um, I highly recommend it to anyone, academic or otherwise, who is interested in uh, the real world of democracy and especially the um, very often tense relationship between collective self-government and individual rationality. Um, So there's a lot to talk about. Um, But before we get into the details of Jamie's analysis, um, Jamie, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book and how you got into philosophy and yourself? Um,
1: Thanks. Um, I'm I'm Canadian originally, so I um, did my undergraduate degree and my master's degree in Canada at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario. Um, I started university uh, fully intending to be a journalist, and so enrolled in a bunch of English classes and so on. And for reasons that I don't entirely remember or understand, I also signed up for a full year um, introduction to philosophy, uh, something like um, contemporary moral, social, and religious issues, and I was just blown away by the course. And so my professor was Marvin Glass, and we did sort of a quick study of a bunch of different political, um, some epistemological, and sort of traditional philosophical questions, and um, I was fucked. So, um, I, you know, took a took a, a short break from school. When I came back, declared as a joint English and philosophy major, and proceeded to just devour all of the courses in philosophy that Carlton had to offer. And uh, enjoyed it so much, I even went back for a master's degree. Um, subsequent to that, I went to Boston University, I'm intending to be a Kant scholar. I went there to study with Henry Ellison and um, quickly discovered that Khan scholarship uh, wasn't uh, where I wanted to end up, and so um, began to look around and eventually settled upon political philosophy and ended up working with Hugh Baxter and David Lyons, in, who are both uh, appointed in the philosophy department and in the law school at Boston University. So the issues that sort of connect my interest in Kant scholarship and political philosophy center on the role of human judgment. Um, I was interested in Kant's uh, understanding of the capacity to judge, and in particular with his rather kind of quirky description and uh, understanding of stupidity, um, the failure of the capacity to judge. And um, so when I decided to turn away from Kant's scholarship and look at more contemporary political issues, um, that same focus on the uh, problems of judgment and the, and the potential for judgment to fail, um, remained my focus. And so even though I ended up changing disciplines rather abruptly, or at least significantly, um, the background concerns that motivated me um, in this area have remained politically constant. So uh, even back then I was worried about questions of judgment. But uh, now my interests are focused more directly in democratic contexts and the ways in which theories of democracy, um, can, uh, succeed or fail in addressing our concerns about the potential failures of human judgment, judgment and decision-making.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you, um, once we get to talking about the book, uh, about, um, uh, the idea of a behavioral approach to democratic theory. And note that the the subtitle of the book is a behavioral approach to democratic theory. Um, But let me just ask one, if you don't mind, uh, just a a question uh, about your background. Um, Because one of the things that comes through uh, very early and and strongly in the book is um, that you were were exposed uh, to um, a literature within economics and legal theory. Um, was this the result of your your training with people who are cross-appointed in philosophy of law at Boston?
1: Um, I think that's part of it. Uh, Also, while I was at Carleton University, one of the great things about the department was that we had a terminal MA program in philosophy, but we didn't have a PhD program. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there was a PhD program in cognitive science that was really exciting, and had great um, students. And so as a result, I was kind of integrated and I took classes along with and, um, you know, just got into lots of great arguments with people who were trained, were being trained as cognitive scientists, but were taking a lot of philosophy classes and were interested in philosophical issues. And so even even at that point, I think that I had begun to be exposed to um, certain, the empirical literature in a serious way. And so that began my... Uh, engagement with some of the behavioral stuff Um, but you're right that once I got um, once I made the transition to political philosophy um, my advisor uh, Hugh Baxter in uh, philosophy um, is a Hopperbock scholar and um, you know for someone like Hugh the idea that you would uh, take on this um, body of empirical research as part of your uh, philosophical project that just seemed completely natural to him, you know, he had to sort of learn all of this obscure German social theory just in order to get started in his field. And so, mm. um, yeah, he, he he was very supportive and just kind of um, encouraged me that uh, this was the kind of thing that, that I could do and um, didn't make it seem like a big deal. And it wasn't until after I had sort of waded through an enormous amount of this literature that I started to realize that um, this isn't something that, everyone else does, actually, in philosophy, that um, I'm doing something uh, kind of uh, non-standard. Uh, and for me, really exciting. I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about my experiences um, writing the dissertation and then uh, developing the book uh, was the ability to engage with um, disciplines outside of philosophy and to learn a great deal about um, fields that are, in many ways, uh, quite
0: different from my own. Well, let me say um, that this is one of the the things about your book, Framing Democracy, that I think is very refreshing in that um, it's a book that um – I guess now to reveal some of my own preferences uh, or, or, or prejudices perhaps um, where I, I usually don't like things that get characterized as interdisciplinary. Um, but this is a book that is interdisciplinary I think in in the good sense in that um, you're actually – you are actually an expert in um, different disciplines and not just an expert in one discipline trying to do work in another. Um and so, um maybe this is a good way to begin sort of talking uh, about the book um, if that's okay. Um, so one place to begin might be at the sort of the the the, the very general level um, so we've uh, you've already said that you're interested in bringing certain kinds of empirical um, uh, results and interests and issues to bear on questions of normative democratic theory. Um, and as I've already mentioned, that the, the uh, subtitle of the book makes reference to a behavioral approach to democratic theory. Um, now, I, I take it that the idea of um, a behavioral approach or behavioral theory um, comes out of some fairly recent work uh, in the disciplines of law and economics and, in fact, comes out of uh, the, the currently conjoint discipline that is known of as law and economics um, and so, uh, without getting into the details of your own particular approach to behavioral uh, issues, um, can you tell us a little bit about what a behavioral approach to any particular issue might look like, or what we mean by calling an approach behavioral? Sure. Um,
1: I think the way that to understand it, uh, the clearest way, is just that the behavioral sub-disciplines of uh, economics, law and economics, finance, a bunch of these other sort of newer disciplines, um, sort of concerns or is interested in um replacing the model of decision making that uh, has occupied the attention of people in the social sciences for a long time and in particular uh, it's, it's referred to as either the rational after model or homo economicus or something like that this idea that we understand human decision making is a kind of rational utility maximization um, and more even more important than that that it's um A highly sophisticated um, and very reliable rational utility maximizer. And so, behavioral economics, behavioral law and economics, and these other disciplines have sought to increase the descriptive power of their disciplines by um, rejecting the rational actor model and seeking to replace it with the picture of decision making imported from uh, empirical psychology, uh, from other social sciences. The idea being that um, if we actually want to understand how markets work, how the law works, how investing works, for example, um, we need to have a more sophisticated, less idealized picture of how humans make decisions, what kinds of uh, phenomena affect their decision making, so on and so forth. And so the behavioral model um, is just one in which we seek to replace the uh, rational actor model of human decision making with something that is imported from uh, empirical sciences and that provides us with um, increased um, descriptive uh, power in the first instance. And I will I go on to claim that actually this is normatively important as well for disciplines like political philosophy and for, norm, uh, for uh, democratic theory because um, we, again this is getting into my own view, but uh, uh, we can make substantive and important mistakes by relying on a descriptively inaccurate picture of how humans make decisions.
0: Well, let me ask uh, um, let me ask a question again, just uh, again about behavioral approaches in general. Um, picking up on on the last point that that you've just made, um, is it typical within this literature to see um, behavioral approaches as purely descriptive and 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 wanting to do behavioral theorists want to resist the thought that There's a normative aspect or at least normative um, results that one can draw out of behavioral data?
1: I don't think so. Um, Most of the people who work, for example, in behavioral economics are interested in uh, improving their decision-making. Similarly with people who work in uh, behavioral approaches to law, I think that they are actually clearer about the normative importance of uh, their projects than people who... um, have worked, for example, in the sort of more traditional versions of their disciplines. So I think that, if anything, uh, most people who work in behavioral uh, social sciences are actually more teed into and more attentive to the normative aspects of, of what they're doing than the disciplines that they came out of.
0: Right. Excellent. Um, so let me – that's very helpful. Let me move now to uh, another sort of aspect of the book, um, where I think it's also uh, very nicely done um, where you provide what might be thought of as sort of a map um, of the terrain uh, and it's a very complex uh, terrain of contemporary democratic theory um, as our listeners might know um, democratic theory has been um, you know, for the past 20 years or so at least uh, a really active as, you know, part of political uh, theory. It wasn't always the case. Um, and so now the field is 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 complex and and rich and has got all kinds of things going on in it. So um, I, I found that one of the really welcome features of of your book um, was um, the fact that you categorize different kinds of democratic theories uh, or different democratic theories um, according to their epi- their epistemological elements or commitments. Um, now, I take it that part of your argument is that, and again, I think this is, um, will, will be surprising to some readers, although I, I'm, I'm totally on board with this uh, myself as somebody who thinks a little bit about democracy. Um, I think that part of the argument is that any feasible view of democracy is going to involve some commitments regarding the epistemic abilities of democratic citizens and that views that try to ignore that or downplay it or deny it are going to do so at the expense of their own feasibility um, or honesty. <laughs> um, you know That is that some views try to deny that there's any commitments about citizen competence and then later in the view you find that it's smuggled in somehow uh, uh, covertly. Um, but your view is that uh, and what you present in the book is a sort of charting of the field by looking at the strengths of these or the varying strengths of these epistemic presuppositions or commitments or in some cases demands that are made. Um, can you walk us through this map of the territory and, and tell us about the different styles of democratic theory um, along this metric? Sure.
1: Um, this, this sort of approach was born out of necessity that when I uh, started to think about um, democracy in these terms and with an eye towards the research coming out of uh, behavioral social sciences – I I realized just how difficult it it was to say anything intelligible about democratic theory. Um, My own opinion is that it's actually misleading to talk about democratic theory as though it's a unified discipline. Uh, I think that if we are being careful, we'll recognize that it's uh, just a very uh, diverse conglomeration of individual theories of democracy. And so I needed to find some way of talking about um, these theories in a way that um, wasn't didn't just kind of paper over all of the important uh, differences between them, but also that allowed me to make uh, the set of claims that I, I wanted to. And so I had to come up with this um, kind of rather opinionated taxonomy of the field just to be able to get the project up and running. And so um, what, I, what I did is I, I sort of developed this spectrum of um, epistemic demandingness that is intended to sort of give us um, a way of sorting individual theories of democracy into something like um, a a coherent narrative. And so what I do is I look at how much an individual theory of democracy demands of the um, reliability of individual citizens, uh, political judgment. And I, I do think that there are some versions of Um, democratic theory that rely little, if any, um, on the political, um, the reliability of the political judgment of citizens. But I think to that extent, they reveal themselves to be rather uh, unattractive and implausible. Uh, And so at at the most minimal end, the end of the spectrum that demands the least of um, our judgment as citizens are purely procedural theories. These are theories that um, emphasize exclusively the procedural value of democratic decision-making. And so the first, and in, in some respects, most, um, uh, uh, you know, powerful, or at least most <laughs> the, the, f- the version of democratic theory that has had the widest impact outside of philosophy is social choice theory. Okay. Social choice theory, um, the, sort of presents democracy as being a mechanism for having the preferences of citizens reflected in, what uh, political or group decisions. And so this is a, a view that basically says that what matters about democracy is having preferences of re- uh, individuals reflected somehow in the decisions of the group. And I, I point out that, um, there's no constraints here on uh, the kinds of preferences that individual citizens can have. They can be foolish, they can be self-destructive, um, they can be uh, unjust, uh, what have you. Preferences are kind of brute on this account. And as a result, um, there's no real demands other than the fact that individuals have preferences and that they can serve to enter them into uh, a, an aggregate function. Mm-hmm. I think again that this um, this is a theory of democracy, but I don't think it's terribly plausible when you recognize that there are no, if you if you view it sincerely in this way as a purely procedural theory, um, there are no constraints that we can place on the proper kinds of preferences that citizens have, and as a result, I, I really am um, suspicious about whether or not we can generate a convincing normative account on on this basis. Slightly more. Appealing are uh, what I call fair proceduralism. These are views that focus exclusively on the value of fairness and the claim that um, democratic procedures provide a fair way of uh, of resolving disagreements. Majoritarianism is is sort of special in the fact that it gives us uh, a way of treating everyone fairly. Again, I I point out, um, relying um, quite heavily on David Eslin's arguments in this regard, that um, uh, fairness conceived, if we're, if we're serious about it being purely fair proceduralism, um, it's very thin and occasional value. This is, uh, Esalen's criticism. Right. And I, uh, I think that this is true that unless we, um, build in some, you know, claims to bolster it, um, the fact that a, uh, a procedure is fair doesn't tell us anything about whether or not it's going to, um, lead to, uh, enormous, uh, Errors to uh, self-destruct or to uh, founder uh, in other ways, and so again, I think that it's um, minimal in terms of its epistemic demands, but for that reason, rather unattractive. And uh, a version there's a version of deliberative democracy which uh, I call the deliberative democracy again, following Esslin. And the idea here is that this is a deliberative theory which uh, completely rejects any external standards for the evaluation of democratic decisions and said, all we care is that the um, procedures uh, engage citizens in deliberation and that deliberation is good uh, in its own right. It's not, uh, we don't look to any external values. And so those are kind of the purely procedural theories. And I I, I claim that um, even though they do represent very minimal demands upon um, the judgment of citizens,
0: they are, for that reason, morally relatively unappealing. <laughs> right, and and just to stop, it, it also seems um, that for this, for at least some of these uh, purely procedural views, more obviously than others, but I think for all of them, that whatever the theorist offering the view specifies as the procedural value, um, there's often a non obviously non democratic alternative procedure. Um, that realizes that value. So um, the famous, now I take it, uh, excellent example for fair proceduralism is, you know, we could always just flip coins. <laughs> that would be really, really fair in a way, but democratically totally um, uh, unavailable or, or, or um, undesirable.
1: And I think that this is revealing because one of the things that we intuitively see uh, immediately with the, the coin toss example is that a coin toss could result in enormously self-destructive or unjust results, um, and um, that that's a problem. And so I think that um, many people who claim to be fair proceduralists, in particular, are actually covertly smuggling in substantive claims about the reliability of uh, democratic decision making. And so right. the, the reason why we uh, react so. Uh, obviously against the idea that we should just make decisions by flipping coins is because well that seems like we could have such terrible decisions being made even though they would be fair decisions um, and so I take this as evidence that um, that many of the people who purport uh, to be giving us a purely procedural theory of democracy are actually covertly uh, committed to uh, more substantial claims about democratic results and the need to subject them to um, standards of evaluation that are not procedural. and, and so, But, you know, in the first instance, what I try and do in the book is I try and give these theories um, uh, a kind of platform to stand on their own two feet, and I don't uh, I don't subject to this kind of criticism. But I think at the end of the day, when we're thinking about these theories in the final analysis, we have to recognize that in order for uh, pure proceduralisms to be uh, plausible, um, they need to incorporate some demands on people's uh, decision-making. For example, I think that um, the, the fact that we could, in a, in a democracy, make decisions which put an end to democracy. We can make decisions that disenfranchise a large number of people. We could make decisions that uh, advocate control to some sovereign. Uh, what many people do is they claim to be giving us a purely procedural theory, but they're making the claim that citizens aren't going to make those mistakes that we do right. on citizens, not to disenfranchise one another, not to abdicate control. But if they do that, then they end up ranking, uh, much further down my,
0: my, right.
1: uh, spectrum Of epistemic demandingness.
0: Right. So
1: right. the, the, the sort of description, uh, The next set of views are stability theories. These are views that will be recognizable um, coming out of people like Joseph Schumpeter and uh, Richard Posner that claim that the central value of democracy is its capacity to ensure uh, stability and to avoid the violence and bloodshed that has characterized the transition of power between non-democratic governments. And so in their austere form these theories simply point out that um, democracies seem to be more stable than other forms of government, and that's what recommends them. In their augmented form, they uh, add considerations about competition, the selection of political, uh, political elites that have good judgment, and the protection of political freedoms to sort of give more body, more substance to their enforcement of democracy. But in their most austere form, I think. Um, the way to understand stability theories is just claiming that democracy is a good way of preventing blood from running in the streets when we have uh, political conflict, and um, that is the central value that we ought to uh, ascribe to democratic rule. And again, I think that this requires us to make some minimal upon uh, the judgment of citizens. They, you know, Citizens need to um, respect uh, the... Outcomes uh, of elections, and they need to recognize that it is in their interest to respect the outcome of citizens' uh, elections. Sorry, mm-hmm. and on the augmented uh, stability theories, where they add claims about competition, selection, and political freedom, uh, there is increasing demand uh, demands placed upon the judgment of citizens. For example, the ability to select from a pool of candidates uh, those that are actually uh, th- th- those that possess sound political judgment or that would make good leaders and so on and so forth. Right. Again, here we're moving up the uh, spectrum of epistemic demands, but we're still at a a point where I think the the kinds of values that we can expect from a theory of democracy uh, to be rather limited. So although I I don't disagree that um, stability is a good thing, it seems like a rather... Um, minimal basis upon which to recommend uh, democ- dem- democracy as a uh, as an institution. So from there, I continue sort of moving up the um, the trajectory towards uh, the most epistemically demanding theories of democracy. And so uh, the next category are modified procedural theories. These are mm-hmm. theories that, uh, include, uh claims, but the value of political procedures, uh, for example. Um, I start with a description of unorthodox social choice theory, which is kind of uh, my attempt to reconstruct uh, uh, over the last um, couple of, maybe 10 or 15 years um, with his um, theory of expressive voting and his uh, considerations about the proper reform of electoral institutions. And what I find is that he seems to be making... Substantive claims about the kinds of decisions that people make in a democracy, um, coming out of his theory of expressive voting, and so this is um, these are kind of hybrids that um, they they recognize the procedural value of democracy, but they also add claims about the ability of uh, democracy to generate substantively good decisions, where we subject those decisions to and analysis against standards of evaluation um, regarding things like truth or correctness or justice or what have you. Similarly, I present a version of epistemic deliberative democracy, which um, conjoins traditional um, deliberative claims about the value of deliberation and the kinds of norms that are required for proper deliberation to um, an attempt to generate substantively good and correct decisions. And finally, in this section, I, Discuss David Esselin's epistemic proceduralism, which um, I think is um, usefully compared to epistemic deliberative democracy, in that, what I take Esselin to be doing is he's um, generating a theory of democratic authority and democratic legitimacy, which requires that human decision making be adequate or a you know, uh, certain standard. In order for us to be able to uh, expect both that democracy be a legitimate form of government, and also for it to be uh, capable of um, making decisions that are of a high enough quality that we um, ought to endorse democracy over other uh, uh, decision making that he claims would pass uh, general acceptability. So again, what we what we see here is uh, theories of democracy that can join. Epistemic claims about good decision making to procedural claims. The the most demanding set of theories, in my estimation, are what I call epistemic theories, and I actually begin with a description of your theory of democracies. So take it a little, bit, right? Just gaveling, thinking about democracy, um, <laughs> and so I begin with uh, logical democracy, which. Um, you know, you can probably summarize it better than I can, but I'll give it a go, uh, is the view that we ought to reject uh, attempts to justify democratic rule via moral norms and instead look to epistemic reasons uh, for endorsing democracy. And in particular, uh, I argue that your view uh, endorses democracy specifically because it is the system of social structure or social norms that gives us um the best shot at a kind of epistemic agency and so on this account um we are committed to democracy by our folk epistemology
0: how does that that's right that's that's the view (laughs) um
1: and so this is, this is a very epistemically demanding theory. It requires a lot. The, the, you know, the, the title you give to it um, in Democracy and moral Conflict is uh, kind of, it requires an epistemically perfectionist state. And so you, that gives you an idea of what kinds of epistemic uh, demands we're placing upon the judgment of citizens. Um, right. The only um, uh, sort of popular theory is that I think uh, outstrip your own in terms of epistemic demandingness or Condorcetian theories, theories that ground the justification of democracy in uh, Condorcet's jury theorem. And these are demanding because they both require that everyone has, on average, uh, above average uh, confidence in terms of their likelihood of getting the correct answer to a given question or problem. And also that it imposes strictures on the kind of political communication that can uh, occur in a a democratic society, uh, making sure that people are actually independent of one another in terms of how they make decisions. The most demanding, and I think uh, in this respect quite implausible, theory of democracy simply claims that uh, democratic decisions are legitimate if and only if they are correct. And so the entire substance of the democratic theory is focused upon the claim that democracies can and do make correct decisions about important political questions, and on this view, uh, democracies sort of advocate or cease to have any legitimacy whatsoever when they uh, fail to adhere to independent standards of correctness.
0: Well, excellent. That's that's very helpful, and and I rather like um, this general way of, of of slicing up up the field. Um, Let me move on now because um, the the heart of the book is – and it's reflected in the title, Framing Democracy. Um, The heart of the book is um, your effort to try to bring to bear on this range of theories a series of results, a particular series of results one should say, um, from the behavioral approach. um, uh, And these results are called Framing Effects. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about framing effects and give us uh, some insight into uh, or a sense of, of your own analysis of them? Uh, what are framing sure.
1: effects? Uh, I'll give you a little bit of background to start. Um, when I first sure. started the project, I actually I had in mind that I would just give a full-blooded behavioral approach where I address a huge number or a large number of different um, biases or um, different kinds of problems with human decision-making. And it became clear fairly quickly that um, that was much too ambitious a project, that in order for me to be able to say anything really satisfactory about the empirical issues and in order to give the kind of case that I think philosophers would uh, think is plausible or convincing um, and then also to do justice to the empirical results so that people working on the empirical side would actually sort of take these seriously... I needed to spend a lot more time um, working on one particular uh, set of issues. And so the heuristics and biases of literature, which is um, a literature that came out of the research of uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who subsequently uh, won, won the um, Economics Nobel for their uh, work, gives a whole range of different kinds of biases. Their basic claim is that we can understand human decision-making best if we uh, think of it as being governed by a small or manageable set of simple rules to decision problems, and they call these heuristics. And then they go on to claim that these heuristics, while generally quite reliable and successful at uh, solving decision problems, result in a kind of systematic bias towards certain kinds of mistakes in specifiable contexts. And so... Um, that's the original literature that I was interested in. I decided that it was too broad. Um, so within that literature, I started looking around for something that was, um, quite uh, pervasive that was, uh, empirically well-confirmed. And that seemed to be from the perspective of the behavioral sciences, kind of uncontroversial, um, people who work in the empirical side, um, just take framing effects. The, 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 um, phenomenon that I decided to focus upon as just kind of part of a landscape of human decision-making. There are debates about how to understand its specifics and whatnot, but um, it's just uh, considered to be part of the furniture of the world uh, for people working in the empirical uh, study of human decision-making. And so a framing effect is, a framing effect occurs when uh, different decision frames or different ways of presenting a decision uh, affect the uh, decisions that people make. And so um, it's, you know, this is quite sort of, I don't know, it scores with my experience quite clearly, but uh, depending on how a decision is presented to me, uh, even if I recognize at the end of the day that the different presentations of the decision are equivalent, I recognize that my own decisions can be uh, impacted or can be swayed by the way they are framed. And so this is a general characterization of framing effects. Uh, a more um, kind of specific one is the, the one that has sort of dominated our thinking about economics and related to the, um, equivalency framing. when formally equivalent presentations of a decision problem elicit different choices. And so in this context, we recognize that we can generate um, formal proofs that show, for example, um, that two different outcomes um, are equivalent, even if they may appear initially to be different. So I think the most famous and the, in some ways, um, most scary version of this has to do with the framing of outcome statistics for different kinds of medical treatments. Depending upon whether a physician frames um, an outcome for you in terms of mortality or in terms of survival, um, they can uh, sort of, you know, put a, a subtle pressure on you to choose one or other of the options. And so, the example is: um, imagine that you're diagnosed with cancer and that you have to choose between surgery and radiation. And the uh, physician tells you that surgery um, has uh, a ninety percent survival rate. Um, after some specified period of time, uh, and that radiation has a 10% mortality rate. Uh, the empirical research uh, sort of supports, that, like, heavily supports the view that the frames that are uh, made in terms of uh, survival tend to uh, be more effective. People will choose the option that's framed in terms of survival more than they will uh, choose the frame that is in terms of mortality, even if they are formally equivalent, you know, 90% survival is equivalent to 10% mortality. And so this is how a lot of research on framing effects is conducted. Uh, it's conducted in these areas where we can show formal equivalence between the different frames. But the effective of framing um, extends beyond areas in which we can generate these formal proofs to questions that are of more obvious um, political salience. And so what I do in the book is I walk us quickly through um, the history of how these um, kinds of effects have been studied, even before Kahneman and Tversky um, I'm looking at some examples from question ordering effects. So the fact that the way that a, uh, a series of questions is presented to you, the order of questions can impact upon your decision-making, and question wording effects. Um, there's this great set of data uh, from the U.S. General Social Survey that shows that uh, Americans' uh, positions on policy issues um, change significantly when you order, when you change the uh, wording of specific questions, even though the the substance of them seems to be exactly the same. And political context effects: the the fact that the background conditions in which people um, evaluate issues can uh, influence our decision-making. And so the example that I think is uh, most striking to me uh, in this area, uh, especially when we're talking about what I call emphasis framing effects. So emphasis framing effects are uh, framing effects that um, Uh, How do I put it in the book? Just, um, I'm going to read it. Uh, An an emphasis framing effect occurs when emphasizing different elements of a decision problem elicits different choices. And so I think the most troubling example for me um, concerns a bunch of research about affirmative action. And the fact that uh, people's uh, level of support for affirmative action varies quite significantly depending upon how it is framed. So, the different frames for affirmative action programs can be um, ending uh, racial discrimination. They can be specifically about the set of policy instruments um, covered by affirmative action. They can be be framed in terms of banning preferential treatment and so on and so forth. And depending on which one of those frames uh, are used, the amount of support that um, Americans in particular will. will give to these uh, kinds of programs, varies considerably. And so this is an example of an emphasis framing effect, which I think is directly relevant to our thinking about democracy, Um, that the fact that people's preferences and judgments about affirmative action are susceptible to the framing of the choice uh, really throws into uh, question um, how we understand the value and the resilience of democratic
0: decision-making. Right. So um, now the argument I, uh, of the book, and this is the central argument, um, is that none of the going uh, theories of democracy, um, regardless of how epistemic they are overtly or um, in the covert cases, Whatever kind of epistemology gets smuggled in, um, that none of them pays sufficient attention uh, to these effects, um, and um, and that's a problem with the theories. That is that um, once you say that epistemology, once you say that epistemology has to figure into your account of. Um, democracy or democratic authority or whatever else you think you're doing when you're theorizing about democracy, uh, once epistemology plays a role in that, then the empirical results concerning actual human reasoning and decision-making have to figure in as well. So I take it that this is all bad news uh, for the more um, uh, demanding epistemologically uh, theories, um, and maybe it's bad news for, for any theory. Is that right? Um, it's troubling
1: it- need not be that depending upon how demanding the theory is. So if you have a theory that's of the, uh, at the more um, or the less demanding end of the spectrum, then this re- these results, I think, will be less troubling. But certainly those um, theories that present or expect substantively good decisions being made by the citizens in a democracy, yeah, this is very important. Um, and what, the thing that sort of motivated the project was that um, this very bad news has been around for a really long time. So the, the literature that I was just describing to you is just one kind of part of uh, a set of empirical results that has been um, calling into question people's decision-making in a democracy. So um, converse sort of the other uh, body of literature that people often worry about, which is Uh, His his, uh, research concerns the kinds of information that people have available to them in a a democracy and whether or not that information is in any way reliable. And so, yeah, I think there are a lot of reasons why uh, we should be very concerned about the ability of actual citizens and voters to measure up to the kinds of demands that uh, philosophical theories of democracy place on them. Uh, for the proper function of a democratic society. And so um, it is the case, though, that if you have a, an exceedingly uh, minimal theory of democracy, like a, a social choice theory or perhaps even an austere uh, stability theory, that perhaps the kinds of demands that we uh, place upon the judgment of, of citizens, maybe they can um, survive the the, or Uh, the concerns about framing effects. But I think that for more demanding and more substantive theories of democracy, then we ought to be really concerned about um, the integrity of people's decision-making, and uh, what I go on to claim later in the book is that we need to realize that the um, design of institutions of democracy need to be um, forefront in our thinking about these questions, because Insofar as we have any ability to improve or to uh, counteract uh, the problems stemming from framing effects, um, it's going to be through the proper design of institutions in the democracy.
0: Right. So, and I I want to make sure we have time to to talk about uh, some of your positive policy proposals for dealing with, or in some way mitigating, or at least recognizing. Uh, The framing effects in our democratic theory. But uh, first, um, you do address or or, or talk about um, some of the ways in which um, proponents of these variously epistemically committed democratic theories attempt or might attempt um, to downplay or to sidestep these issues. So some views employ various kinds of idealizations, for example. Other views set the uh, the bar so low that everybody's going to meet some kind of uh, basic level of, of epistemic competence. Um, can you talk a little bit about these ways of trying to evade um, the full impact, or at least as you see it, the full impact of these yeah. results? Um, I
1: think that the, the most common way that people uh, integrate claims about epistemic con- competence into their democratic theories, that they just assert that um, we have uh, capacities that um meet the demands of the theory and so you know I, I way that i sort of frame this is i think that we should think about epistemic competence as a threshold concept and that we say that someone is competent if they surpass some threshold but that threshold has to be specified by the theory of democracy and what i think most people have done in the history of uh democratic theory is just to sort of assert that um Roberts are good enough that they have capacities that uh, surpass what is required. The problem with this kind of approach is that it it leaves us open to um, empirical disagreements. And so, if it's the case, and I think it is the case, that the empirical literature uh, on human decision making is troubling, that it uh, paints a picture of human decision making that um, that is uh, significantly less reliable than most of us uh, might have expected it to be. Then we have to then defend our theory of democracy on empirical grounds using evidence and data in a way that is really um, unfamiliar to people working in philosophical theories of democracy, and, and I think really unattractive. And so this idea that we can just factually assert it, I think, is um, is a, a bad strategy. I don't think that that's actually what people working in philosophy ought to do, and that I think democratic theories uh, are ill-served by this kind of approach. Uh, a more um, attractive uh, way of approaching epistemic confidence I think, is just by, uh, is just employing a kind of um, approach from ideal theory, and just to say, listen, when we're thinking about justice, when we're thinking about legitimacy, when we're thinking about authority, um, we will make idealizing assumptions about, uh, you know, scarcity of resources, uh, whether or not people are prone to envy, what have you. There's, you know, political philosophy does this all the time, uh, and we just sort of, you know, uh, idealize the problem away. We just assume that people are competent uh, in order for us to be able to direct our attention to uh, questions about what would ideally be the case. What would an ideal democracy look like? What would uh, democratic authority or legitimacy look like if uh, everyone had um, all of the capacities required and again I don't, I don't I don't have a problem with this as, a, as an approach to democratic theory. I am broadly sympathetic with people like David Esland who sort of um, present this as a an attempt to Generate a theory of democracy that's doing something comparable to Rawls' attempt to generate uh, an ideal theory of justice. I just simply don't think that that's um, enough. I think that even if ideal theories of democracy are interesting in their own right, I don't see why that means that that should be the um, entirety of philosophical uh, discussions of democracy. And, And I guess in general, I am kind of... Uh, sympathetic with critics like C. W. Mills and others that sort of think that we need in philosophy to direct more of our attention to um, the analysis of conditions and um, situations that actually resemble the conditions and situations that we live under. And so, my view is that even if, if even if it's uh, a permissible philosophical move to idealize uh, competence away. Um, that doesn't mean that that's all we should be doing in philosophy, and I think that we have in philosophy we, we've got we've got enough ideal theorizing going on, and I would like to see more of our attention directed towards non-ideal circumstances and cases. And so I don't I don't reject the possibility or the uh, the appropriateness of this kind of a move. I just don't see why it should occupy all of our attention in philosophical. Um, discussions. The last please. did you want to jump in? No, no, please go on. Uh, a version or approach uh, is the moral principle. And this is, again, quite common. The idea is that we ought to treat individuals as though they were competent on moral grounds, that we try and generate a moral argument for why um, treating individuals as competent uh, is morally appropriate or morally required. And I, I I I think that this is attractive and I would like for this to be the case, but I can't see why I can't come up with an explanation for why this is permissible. That doesn't seem ad hoc or um, to sort of fly in the face of of, uh, concerns that we have. Um, My concern is that if we treat individuals as confident on a given theory of democracy, and we don't actually meet the epistemic demands of that theory I'm concerned that there could be really bad consequences to that result, and so um, I don't, I don't see. It, although it's possible that someone could come up with a moral um, uh, argument that uh, would make these problems go away, I haven't seen one, and so I think that we ought to, to really question whether or not we can expect um, the goods that democracy is held to offer to accrue to us um, if we don't actually have the capacities.
0: Uh, required by the theory. Right. So, um, picking up on this, then, uh, especially the concerns um, uh, to make a move within the realm that's often referred to as non-ideal theory, where you're actually trying to take the 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 cruel facts of the of the world and to point a way forward and things that we could actually do now to. Um, Try to uh, improve our situation with respect to justice or freedom or something um, can you talk us I mean the book ends with uh, uh, very suggestive discussions of some actual policy interventions that you would recommend in light of uh, the framing effects uh, and and it, and their bearing on um, democratic theory. Can you walk us through a little bit of of that sure, part of the book
1: sure. um, so I divide up the landscape into sort of three broad uh, ways that institutions can attempt to uh, respond or address framing effects. And so the first is through uh, institutions governing political speech. The second is through insulating strategies. And the third is through education. And maybe what I'll do is I'll take them up in reverse order here just because I think the education um, uh, example or the... uh, option is often the most attractive to people, what we can do is we can try and use an educational system to reduce or eliminate our susceptibility to framing effects. This is really attractive because we already have institutions of education, um, some institutions of public education, and um, we could use those institutions to try and um, sort of eliminate its source by just removing our susceptibility to framing This is really attractive, but there's very little empirical evidence to support the view that it's uh, feasible. So unfortunately, uh, most of the attempts that have been made to use, you know, education in various forms uh, to reduce our susceptibility to framing haven't had terribly much success. Um, It seems like it's possible to um, reduce our susceptibility to framing effects in specific areas of our lives so you know if you um, are trained to watch out for framing effects um, in the giving and receiving of medical advice that you can sometimes uh, reduce one's susceptibility to framing but it doesn't seem like it's generalizable that there's anything that we have been able to do which across the board makes us less likely to be influenced by frames and so um, although I agree that it would be great if we could use an educational system to um, address these concerns in a democracy. I just don't see there being terribly much um, hope in this area. Uh, the, the literature here, um, the most interesting stuff is by uh, someone named Berwick fishoff and he's tried things like developing undergraduate uh, or a sort of high school curricula um, using sort of critical thinking modules and developing to address effects and other kinds of biases. And um, none of them seem to be as effective as, uh, as we would hope. So I don't think that education is going to be the solution, uh, at least not um, given the kinds of attempts that have been made so far. And so two other options sort of present themselves. Um, the first are insulating strategies, um, these are mechanisms that attempt to prevent bad decisions being made by the electorate, let's say, from um, actually impacting upon people's lives. And so this is a way of trying to insulate um, democratic outcomes from flawed decision-making. So preventing our susceptibility from fr- uh, to framing effects from actually resulting, for example, in bad law. And so what I do here in this section is I just recast uh, and uh, whole sort of existing literature and democratic theory uh, concerning constitutions uh, and judicial review and other kinds of review. I just recast all of those debates in terms of our desire to bolster the epistemic value of democratic decisions. And so I think that we can understand constitutions as a way of insulating um, decisions uh, from really bad Uh, mistakes. And the way that we do this is we sort of say, well, here's this constitution. It um, prevents us from making certain really kinds of bad decisions uh, regarding rights in particular. And so even if the electorate uh, makes mistakes, uh, we have a mechanism that insulates outcomes from those bad decisions. And so this leads to a description of uh, review mechanisms, in particular of the Supreme Court and its role here, where I attempt to... um, to generate an argument which says, listen, we can expect um, the members of uh, a Supreme Court, if we design the institutions properly, to be less susceptible to framing effects than the average citizen. And if that's the case, then we can expect um, judicial review to actually bolster and improve and insulate democratic decisions from uh, flawed um, decision making uh, this is uh, I'm not you know I'm I'm trying not to uh, reinvent the wheel in these sections um, but what I'm doing is I'm looking at uh, in particular Jeremy Waldron's um, court case against judicial review and attempting to explain how we can make sense of those arguments um, within the within the sort of the the framework that I provided in the rest of the book and so um, the the other uh, the last remaining um, institution that I think is useful for um, addressing and counteracting framing effects has to do with political speech, and in particular with the promotion of competition between frames in a democracy. The idea uh, being that, um, and, and this is supported to some degree by the empirical literature that. Um, Greater competition between frames, having a plurality of frames for a given political issue, reduces our susceptibility to any given frame, and that the hope is that um, if we are presented with enough and a varied range of frames for a political question, then we will um, be less swayed by the 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 frames and more attentive to the substantive issues in question. And so I sort of look at this analogy um, with antitrust institutions uh, mm-hmm. uh, democracies and look to the possibility of using um, existing democratic institutions to bolster uh, uh, or to improve the amount of competition between frames, for example, by uh, strengthening the uh, multi-party uh, nature of elections. Uh, I think that two-party systems um, uh, are not going to be sufficient to improve the the caliber of uh, democratic decision-making. And I think that ways to diversify the number of political parties are necessary. Um, But I also look at the problem of media consolidation and the possibility that, uh, that a restriction in the number of media frames for political decisions will serve to uh, reduce or weaken or make less reliable um, the decision of democratic electorates. And so I look uh, in this section, I sort of use Habermas and his recent work on on media facts uh, in order to sort of uh, try and propose some strategies for how we might go about ensuring that there's a effective vigorous Amount of debate between or uh, competition between frames in the media, and uh, in the hope that be sufficient to uh, improve our uh, decision making and make it less susceptible to framing effects.
0: So all's not lost.
1: Um, um, no, I think that there are there is hope. <laughs> but what I, <laughs> I hope that people take away from the book is that if we are committed to these more ambitious and more morally substantive theories of democracies, uh, to theories of democracy, then we have to recognize that there are substantive institutional questions that need to be addressed and that we cannot be complacent about the epistemic capacities and epistemic competencies of citizens. And so I, I fear that what happens is that people, um, endorse these more robust and more demanding theories of democracy, and they don't realize the institutional implications of these views. And so they don't realize how much um, this impacts or ought to impact upon our thinking about the design of institutions in a democracy. And so the the point of the book is very much to sort of say, listen, if you um, are... On board with my empirical claims about our susceptibility to framing effects, and it seems like you have two options. One is you can um, reduce your expectations from democracy um, by um, reducing or um, kind of giving up on a set of moral claims about what democracy has to offer, and so we can just sort of you know, revert to the minimalist end of the spectrum and say, well, we can't expect very much from democracy. Um, that's a, an option. I don't think it's terribly attractive because I don't really see what we can substantively expect from democracy once we go that route. And so if we, if we don't go that route and we actually say, okay, we're going to, um, we're going to insist upon these more ambitious claims about democratic decision-making then we need to double down and we need to recognize that there are institutional strings attached, that there are, um, we have made some substantive commitments to the epistemic of citizens, and we ought to be willing to um, make sacrifices and to dedicate resources in order to ensure that people have the epistemic capacities that we require of them.
0: Excellent. Um, well, you've been very generous uh, with your time um and uh we're winding down uh with with our interview so um I ask usually at the end of these, but some have claimed is it an unfair question, especially when posed to somebody who's just finished a book, and folks, this book has just come out um but jamie um can you tell us uh what the next project has uh what what the next project is or, or where where you plan to go next in your thinking
1: yeah um
0: so <laughs> Long pause. Yeah.
1: Uh, the, there's a couple of things that I, I'm continuing to do. So one is I still have my eye on sort of the broader uh, behavioral approach. And I'm still, I continue to read actively in the empirical side of things to sort of keep my myself abreast of the developments. Um, so I'm still interested in the behavioral approach of democratic theory more generally and sort of thinking about that. But I've also gotten interested recently uh, in questions about immigration as they pertain to democratic theory and um, starting to worry about um, the possibility that um, institutions of democracy as I present them and the kinds of institutions that I think are useful for improving the epistemic capacities and epistemic reliability of democracies might be in conflict with um, the demands of collective self-determination That people have been focusing upon recently in debates uh, regarding, for example, the right to exclude um, and other areas in which um, thinking about democracies as kinds of group agents has been increasingly important for uh, people's thinking. And so I'm I'm working on a project right now that seeks to put collective self-determination into conflict with. The kinds of institutions um, that I think are needed in order to ensure um, that we are making good decision-making, good decisions in a democracy.
0: Well, excellent. Um, that sounds exciting. Uh, and um, if this new work results in a book, uh, maybe we'll have you back on new books and philosophy. Um, but for now, um, I just wanted to thank you for your time. And for talking to us about your book, Framing Democracy, a Behavioral Approach to Democratic Theory. Thanks, Bob. This has been great. Take care now. You have been listening to my interview with Professor Jamie Kelly of Vassar College. We have been talking about his new book, Framing Democracy, published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talish, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.